Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the CX Cast. Sam Stern, joined as always by Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And we have on the phone from our San Francisco office our colleague, principal analyst, Andrew Hogan. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We wanted to talk to you about a topic that is embodied in a new report that you have written recently called Data Fuel Products how to thrive in the design and data science collision, which is a very provocative title to me, at least. I, I want to learn more about that. But we really are interested in how are you thinking about this topic in a larger sense than just what's in the report? Because I think it's one that a lot of companies are wrestling with and a lot of society is wrestling with. Like a lot of the stories in the news are really at the center of the report that you've just written. So what was the impetus for this research? There are more and more things that we use every day that shift and change dramatically based on who you are, based on what you've done before. Think of Netflix, think of Spotify, think of YouTube. Those things don't look the same for any one of us. And I wanted to dig into the design methods that companies like that were using to design products like that to make them good or to make them maybe go a little bit awry. Give us one of the memorable examples of this going awry. I mean, Facebook and YouTube both have a number of examples. I think many of us are familiar with Facebook's uh, amplification of all kinds of sensational media stories, conspiracy theories, some of them, you know, pushed by state actors. And, uh, you know, the way their newsfeed works, it, it made those things more prominent. YouTube has a number of examples where they have been connected into pedophilia rings or other kinds of really disgusting parts of society that have been able to use those tools as an amplification method. And it almost feels like the people working on the other side didn't think that that was a possibility and then weren't sure what to do when it actually happened. So we're looking at yeah. here is a case where algorithms are being used to make decisions on and surface specific content in those cases. Could you help to sort of define what is sort of this data-fueled product and what is the impact of sort of the algorithm in this discussion? Yeah. So a data field product is a digital product that recognizes patterns and anomalies relevant to users' goals in large quantities of data and then adjust parts of its user interface in response. Mm -hmm. If you look at YouTube, YouTube has, you know, the video player in the middle and then everything around that shifts dramatically based on who you are and based on what you've done before and what you've watched before. Spotify has a core set of structural elements, and then everything around that changes. And obviously, the animations and other things like that don't, don't necessarily change. But you can look at that and see just the amount of change that exists in the way that these things aren't just the algorithms themselves. They're also the way that the recommendations are surfaced. They're also the way that things are framed. They're also the way that they're trained within the, the product itself. So it's a way of thinking about it beyond just sort of the magical AI that gets things done. Mm -hmm. It's also the product and everything around that. Sort of the same way that, you know, sometimes we don't say UX designer anymore. We say digital product designer in an effort to make it a broader discussion. You know, these products are everywhere from, uh, you know, Salesforce's tools to better provide lead scoring to Adobe's tools to help designers design things better and do things faster. There are many, many examples. And so when we think about that then and what a traditional definition of designer may have been doing, they would create the website, right? And they would design the interface and sort of pick the colors and where will content go. As they're moving towards this increasingly digital product basis, in some cases, you're just designing the shell, right? And you don't know what content will be in it, right? Or that content is going to be really dynamic. So as the designer, you have in a way less control over what that output will look like or you're designing for a variety of different scenarios. So then is mm -hmm. the designer 
I guess, now responsible for coming up with all of those scenarios and the algorithms that are feeding them? No. I mean, you, you just, they can't. That's yeah. that's too much. That's like a classic, you know, we, we need a, you know, a chief chatbot officer. We need a chief, you know, it's sort of everyone wants to say that there's like a, a central locus of control and they sort of run everything. The power of design is the ability to ask questions and to help people find better answers. And I think that's the role of the designer here. I think about Annika Crowley, who's our designer on, on Google's um, Gmail product, and she works on Smart Compose. And uh, within the design of that feature and a few others, she had this realization that you could work for months and months and months and only find this little string of orange text as the only thing that you saw at the end. And it wasn't that she had spent all of her time working on the orange text. It wasn't that she had spent all the time coming up with the algorithm. It was that she had spent time with a team working through how this thing should work and function and be surfaced, but she's not responsible for the algorithm itself um, and, and everything that it does. Which is probably why the name of this research that you said was the Design and Data Science Collision. So as part of that team that she was working with, I imagine there were a lot of data scientists on it. Yeah, a lot of data scientists, a lot of data engineers. I mean, sometimes we simplify. We say, oh, designers, but we really mean copywriters and content strategists and motion designers and, you know, all that. In the same way, we simplify data science to just be data scientists when there's really an entire stack of engineering happening the same way that there's a stack of design happening. Andrew, when I think of those two different groups, right, that that are actually many subgroups, as you just uh, did a good job of articulating. This is maybe an unfair characterization, so push back on this. But I think of the data side of that as representing the what can we do as their main question. What can we do with the algorithm or with the technology? And the designers representing more of the what should we do? You know, I guess maybe do we need like, you know, a every company should have a, a committee sort of like the Amish have where we're going to evaluate this technology for a while and see if it's good for our community or not? I don't think it's fair to say data scientists don't think about this. And I don't think it's fair to say that designers actually think about this because I think many of them don't. I think many of them are caught up in, you know, when are my restricted documents vesting? I think many of them are caught up in my lunch is free. And, you know, but this is the exciting way we're going to change the world because that's that's just the way that we work. And that's the way that, that um, companies get things done. They get people excited and motivated to move in that direction. And the core thing that should be happening is what's the negative outcome that's going to happen for our business? Because businesses often don't make decisions based on ethics. They make decisions based on negative or positive consequences. And design is really well equipped to ask those questions. And the last thing I'll say there is many businesses are actually still sitting on the sidelines. The number that are actually doing an AI initiative is only about 53%. And if you get down to some of the specifics of the, the AI techniques, you know, as of last year, many of them were still in the sort of 20 to 25% range in terms of adoption. So they are sitting on the sidelines. But I don't think they're actually asking, should we do this, like, you know, ethically? I think they're just sort of struggling with even how to seize the opportunity between this data science and design collision in a way that many companies that we would consider upstarts have seized. Right. I, I see what you're saying. I, I think if, if more of those companies got off the sideline, we might actually see a broader or more interesting application of some of these algorithms, some of these use cases. Well, and I also think there's a massive opportunity to make many employees work better through, you know, augmented intelligence, which is something that other analysts like Shell Carlson have, have talked a lot about recently. But when you think about how do you make your employees better, the possibilities get much bigger. And um, in many cases, the ethical dilemmas become 
less of a problem because you can also structure the interface so that people know some of the issues that may be inherent in the tools that you're creating or the decision support systems that you're creating. You actually sort of have an employee line of, well, I don't, I don't want to do this. This seems bad versus, you know, right now YouTube isn't reviewing what it's recommending to, you know, young men who are watching video game content and getting uh, alt-right information. And so that speaks to the fact that these algorithms, while they can be helpful, right, they can help identify patterns, automate tasks, uh, do a whole myriad of things, they also can go wrong. What are some of the other types of problems that you found in this report which can create those negative outcomes? There's problems with underlying data, and then there are other problems with the way that information is being surfaced or the, the recommendations or the guidance are being surfaced. And often one of the big problems is, well, let's just tell them to go do this. Let's just tell this user that they should perform this action next. And often that's not enough for people to actually take an action or want to take an action. You've got to provide them a little bit about why you're making this recommendation, where that's from, and make them feel comfortable. Then there are other issues of, you know, is this even this thing even a, a good idea? You know, there's a face app example that had a sort of as a beauty filter, uh, lighten users' skin because of the underlying data, which is an underlying data problem. But maybe we shouldn't even be building, you know, beauty filters. Andrew, another thing I noticed in the research, and I think that presents a challenge, and actually we have a former colleague who I will protect by not mentioning his name, who used to say this, but basically, you know, big data is going to make qualitative research obsolete. And I think that kind of mindset is just so dangerous. And you highlight this in the report, I'd love for you to talk about it a little bit of, well, the data set is so big that we don't need five more interviews. But without that nuance and the context of the on the ground types of methods and the exploration of why the person did what they did or why they think they did what they did, you really don't know anything. And, and it feels like that's another sort of category of problems that companies run into when they sort of just take the insights that seem to emerge from these big data patterns and the algorithms as if that's all they need to know about the situation. I completely agree. Last year, one of the big things that shaped the way that I thought about what was happening is there was this entire Twitter discussion, you know, amongst the data data science and sort of design Twitter world. And there was a particular tweet that, paraphrasing, was about, I just discovered that I need to remember to go talk to people. I just learned this lesson again. Looking at tables of data is so limiting. That's the way, this is the way that you understand data science problems. And uh, one of the, the snarkiest and my favorite response, data scientists just discovered anthropology, and this is the greatest discovery since economists discovered psychology and called it behavioral economics. And really, it's like a rediscovery of these other tools that you can use to be successful and to understand more about what one professor calls the algorithmic imaginary, which is what people think of as happening behind the scenes, so that you can better explain where your recommendations are coming from, what they can do next, and how confident they should be at the results. I think it's really powerful to get that sort of qualitative anthropological sort of perspective. And again, I think this is where when we learn more and more and we collect more and more data, we have this fallacy where we think we know everything then because we have more data than we had before. And what we keep finding is how endlessly complex things like nutrition, things like uh, environment or an ecosystem are, and as well, how complex human psychology is, how complex some of these interactions are that companies are delivering. So to think that you have, even if you have a lot more data than you had before, that you have enough data to understand everything that's happening and why it's happening, you're fooling yourself. And, and I feel like that's where a lot of these errors come from. People proceed confidently ahead because they have more data than they had before and yet still have only a fraction of the understanding required to know why it's happening or what's going to happen next. 
Yeah, I had a great conversation with a designer at IDEO who leads a, a research team there about the, the data science and design collision because, you know, from her perspective, she saw that these methods were being underused as well. And she also saw that there was a lack of acknowledgement of the biases that humans have when they create the data. So, you know, the problem becomes it's not like unbiased data because people are making it and you know, in systems where the systems are set up to go in a certain direction. We're not even talking about bias in the sort of racial or socioeconomic sort of sense. We're just talking about bias in what people sort of prefer to do and the way that the interactions end up working. And so it's not that data is infallible. It's that data is made by people, and people can sometimes introduce these strange things to it. So you end up with methods like you want to make like sort of a data journey map, where you map where data is created, where it sort of flows through, where it's transformed, where it's used, and actually start to understand some of the issues that are happening there. But all of that seems slower and not as sexy as, you know, AIing it up and putting mm-hmm. super-powered AI in there. <laughs> AIing it up. So I'm relatively pessimistic in general on this, but one point of optimism that I do have, and Andrew, I wonder if you encountered any of this in the research, is that when we put our biases into the algorithm, right, and oftentimes it's unwitting, as you said, it's completely innocent, but they become more apparent in the algorithm just because it's running off more data and it's not us doing it, it's some algorithm. Do you see that organizations are learning from that at all, right, or that it's helping people, individuals within organizations? Is that learning coming back to the individuals in the organization who had the bias that went into the algorithm to begin with? Are they not really getting that learning back from the algorithm? I don't know if I could paint a broad brush of this is happening everywhere. I would say an example I heard from the Gmail team is the realization of the way that their systems were being trained after one of their uh, auto-compose, smart-compose features started completing investor as him. The example is Anna is an investor. Would you like to meet with? And then the Gmail algorithm would complete it with him. And this was in prototype testing. This didn't roll out. Obviously, assuming that an investor must be male and not accounting for the name Anna, which is you know difficult to know whether it's male or not. And that seemed to really cause the team to take a step back and wonder what was happening there. And, and they've actually highlighted that example publicly as a way of showing that they had a realization about issues. And they actually ended up taking out personal pronouns altogether as a result. So even when you are building this data-fueled product, it may seem impossible to prototype until that (laughs) algorithm's, you know, been perfected, Um, but it's going to be really important too so that you don't run into any of these problems. Yeah, um, it's, it's definitely important, but in this research I've found it's definitely not impossible. Um, there's a lot of examples um, in every conversation I've had, in every presentation I've been to, in every Q&A that I've listened to of presentations going into processes and case studies. Uh, sketching has become incredibly important as a way of highlighting some potential issues or thought processes or, or data source issues. And one designer from Netflix, Hannah Matty, uses sketching to actually get, you know, what are the data sources you're planning to use, data scientists? So I can sort of think about whether there might be bias in those data sources. And then the other one is Wizard of Oz prototyping, which is a method that I think we often associate with really complex physical products or other kinds of things like that. Just getting an example, you know, here, send us your email inbox or your five favorite emails was something that the Gmail team used to prototype their services, their changes. And so it creates this environment where you actually start to see some of the problems that surface because you're using real people's data and information in a way that they're okay with and in a very small, closed, qualitative testing and research way. 
Oh, that's great. The Wizard of Oz is always such a great method to use so that you don't have to build it, right? And you can have the person sort of mimic the technology first. So, oh, that's what they call that. I see. Yeah, because it's, it's, you know, the person behind the curtain right, and right. you don't know what's there. And in some instances, it's a person just talking and pretending to be the technology. Or in other cases, it's just mm-hmm. the less robust or built out technology without a person is helping facilitate. And in this example, it was, you know, someone using um, like a a sketch or an Adobe XD or something sitting behind the curtain, changing in real time the prototype and then putting those back in front of people. So it really was the sort of, you know, the person acting like the algorithm as the course of the interview was happening. So are there any other sort of tips or tricks that you found in this research that companies should be using to navigate this, you know, design data science collision? So I think there's a really interesting framework that describes technologies on a spectrum of agentive, so doing things on on your behalf, or assistive, uh, helping you do things. And the further ends of the spectrum are automatic or manual. And uh, it's a framework from someone at IBM, Chris Nossel, and I heard about it through Netflix's Hannah Maddy. In this framework, it's a really useful way of understanding how much you should do for people and giving you, you know, a way to prototype a range of, of data fueled products that do more or less uh, for people. So, you know, one example would be, uh, you know, we rearranged your whole inbox uh, so that, you know, you don't have to think about it anymore and we just hit everything else for you. And that might cause a lot of anxiety, but simultaneously it would also cause a lot of anxiety if we asked you, you know, for a week, every email, whether we should put it in this box or that box. Mm-hmm. So that's clearly too much. So some, somewhere in between is the way that people would like to interact with their emails and manage their inboxes. Yeah, okay. Let me, um, let me maybe more clearly state the pessimist case since I alluded to being a pessimist before. Yeah. Um, and Andrew, I'd love your reaction to this. And I, you know, I don't want to be a pessimist. I feel like I just am about this. And I'll try to explain why I think I am and you can try and talk me out of it, which is I fundamentally don't trust the people who are using these algorithms the most today. And I think the really dangerous thing is I think they think they have good intent and they don't. And to me, that's worse than people with bad intent who know they have bad intent. I actually think Mark Zuckerberg thinks he's saving the world, and I think he is delusional. So I think it's unfair to say that everybody on the optimistic side is Mark Zuckerberg. I think Mark Zuckerberg is a unique individual in a unique business and in a unique sort of situation. I think there's real merit to the idea that people trying to maximize attention and manipulate more time spent, create more time spent within their products, there's real concern about their incentives. I think there's less concern about the possibilities here where maybe it would be a lot easier to find a doctor. Maybe it'd be a lot easier to have a doctor who can help diagnose you more effectively or, you know, ask you better questions. I think there's real opportunity here with, uh, some of the possibilities around, I don't know, how much faster we could potentially get things shipped to us. There's, there's yeah. all sorts of other things happening here that I think are often obscured by the attention sort of manipulation economy. And even that is a little unfair because I think that Google's incentives and behaviors are very different than Facebook's incentives and behaviors when it comes to, you know, how much time they want you to spend with a particular product or service. And I think we've already seen some great things happen with translation with, you know, auto-tagging of photos and auto-tagging of photos for people who can't see them. I think there's some real possibilities that are overshadowed when you say Zuckerberg is the face of 
optimism around AI. Yeah. Okay. I, I hear you. And I, I guess the other thing I would say that makes me pessimistic in general is you use the example of um, finding a doctor. I think it's a good one. And I think in general, you know, it's a, it's a feature I've used myself in, in certain, you know, very limited uh, settings. But I think a lot of what they end up doing is replacing human connection that makes a human society where we're knitted together, focused on our commonalities, focused on coming together to solve problems. And they are isolating us in boxes, in our little apartments, in our little worlds, in our little bubbles. And it is part of destroying modern society. I'm going to take that question seriously. The idea of monetizing attention is the big part of the problem there. And the solution to this is to think about intelligence augmentation and how to help people make better decisions, smarter decisions, and, you know, try to uncomplicate things like finding a doctor, which are needlessly complicated. You know, instead, if you could call and you could actually, you don't even have to call. It's sort of like if it helps you get to a doctor faster where you can have a personal connection, you don't have to disintermediate that. And I think that's the whole power of the design and data science collision, where you don't just think about it as data science solves all these problems. You think about it as the collision between them makes the use of data science more powerful, which is a major issue within the field. They make things that no one then uses and then they're frustrated. Yeah, and I think what you just said is if, if the algorithm helps surface information that makes it more likely to select the right doctor for me, but, you know, and this is where I focus, as you said, on the employee experience, but it gives it to the scheduler at the, you know, the insurance company or the, um, you know, the healthcare company where they can describe it to me and, and describe this individual because they know all the doctors at the facility. To me, that's a use case that connects us, that fills me with more trust, that adds value to an existing interaction that needs some of that information to be surfaced without destroying some of the other parts of what make that that human-to-human connection and the recommendation that comes out of it a real feature to this, right? Real A real sense of building the trust between humans because we rely on that. We rely on people's recommendations we have for as long as there have been human societies. And so I just think that's where it's often guided towards replacing that human to human connection rather than augmenting it. And I think that's a shame. But you're highlighting the way that you would prefer to do the interactions or have the interactions work. That's not the way that everybody would prefer to have them. And I think that's the power here is you would design for both kinds of preferences um, and make them both better depending on how people wanted to interact. But the idea of just removing humans just to remove humans and reduce costs uh, is flawed and doesn't make any sense when you think about it from the perspective of a quality user experience. Many people will hate not talking to a person and just using a machine, and those things will they, you know, they often fail to get the sort of adoption that companies that build them expect them to get. And then they end up with more of an augmented sort of approach, which is probably what they should have been doing in the first place. Right on. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you for joining us to talk through the smashing together of design and data science and the products and services coming out of it and some of the, the problems and the pitfalls and some of the potential. Lots of P words there. Listeners, we've posted a link to Andrew's report on this topic, which has lots of examples, lots more detail, lots of great quotes from designers at some of these firms about how they're thinking about it, how they're trying to change the way we do this uh, in a positive way. So Andrew, I appreciate you coming on and giving us a nice dose of optimism around this topic. Listeners, we'll talk to you all on next week's episode of the CX Cast. Goodbye for now. Thanks to our colleagues, Amanda Chen, for recording and mixing the episode, and Will Wilsey for editing and publishing. And listeners, if you have questions, feedback, comments, or suggestions for new episodes, please email us at cxcast at forrester.com. And remember, your customers' perceptions are your customer experience reality.